Hey everyone, welcome to K-Pop Bookshelf Podcast. This podcast is where we will be exploring Korean popular culture through books. I'm the host of this podcast, Mina, and I can't wait to talk about books with you. Before we launch into the episode, I just want to take a moment to let you know that you can reach me on social media. I'm on Instagram at K-Pop Bookshelf Pod, all one word. The end is pod as in podcast, K-Pop Bookshelf Pod on Instagram. I'm on Twitter at K-Pop Bookshelf, no pod at the end of that one, just K-Pop Bookshelf. And I am even for some reason on Tumblr, also at K-Pop Bookshelf. Please give me a follow, send me a tweet, put a like on my post. As always, I also have a website and the links in my bio and show notes will take you there. The book that we are taking down from the bookshelf today is Shoko's Smile by Eunyoung Choi, or your book may have it in the Korean name format of Choi Eunyoung. This is a beautiful collection of short stories about everyday people, most of whom are living through or remembering when they lived through major historical events. I decided to use this episode to cover some of the events alluded to in these stories. Below is the spoiler-free, very short summary of the stories I'll be covering. The first story, Shoko Smile, which is the same as the title of the book, is about a Korean girl who meets a Japanese girl through a cultural exchange program and their brief in real life friendship, as well as their pen pal friendship. The Japanese friend, Shoko, also develops a friendship with the main character's grandfather. The story, Sin Jiao Sin Jiao, is about Asian immigrant families living in Germany who, after living for some time in an idyllic present, must confront their past. The story, Sister, My Little Sune, is about a younger relative's perspective of the tragic turn the life of her older relative takes. And the last story I'll be covering is the story called The Secret, which is about a grandmother deeply missing her granddaughter who, according to the girl's parents, is off teaching in a faraway place. The author of this book, Eunyoung Choi, is a woman in her 30s who is known for writing emotional stories about people who live on the margins of society or as outsiders. And this book was originally published in Korean and then was translated for the U.S. market by Song Yu. In an interview with Electric Lit, she says, quote, I try not to idealize or exaggerate human relationships in my stories, preferring to paint them in the most realistic light. I'm particularly interested in friendships, which often take a backseat to romances in fiction, end quote. I really wish I could talk about so many of the topics that this book covers, but I decided it would actually make more sense to cover historical events for today's episode. It actually may help you when you're reading this book to know a little bit about the history. A content note is that this book does contain some subject matter, which some readers may find emotionally triggering. This includes incarceration, massacres, suicidal ideation, grief, loss of children, mental illness, and national tragedies. If this episode is not for you, or if this book is not for you, that's perfectly okay. And spoiler alert, there might there may be some spoilers in today's episode, but it may actually be helpful, as I mentioned, to hear this episode before you read the book, and then you'll know a little bit more about the context that the events in this book allude to if you didn't already know them before. And a little foreign language note, this episode involves me attempting to say words in multiple languages which are not in my native language and which are foreign to me. So please forgive me for any pronunciation mistakes. I hope I don't hurt your ears. 
Shoko's Smile. In the story Shoko's Smile, the Japanese friend Shoko, who visits the main character Soyoung's family for a week, befriends Soyoung's grandfather. Although Shoko and Soyoung can only converse in the limited English they've learned as students, Soyoung's grandfather is fluent in speaking, reading, and writing in Japanese. The characters exchange letters, with Shoko writing to Soyoung in English and writing to the grandfather in Japanese, and Grandpa also responds in Japanese. But why and how does Grandpa know Japanese so fluently? Well, Korea, as you probably already know, was once under colonial Japanese rule. And one aspect of this time was the banning of the Korean language and the requirement for learning the Japanese language for students in Korea. Okay, so as always, when discussing history and world events, I'm trying to be sensitive and careful when I speak. So don't think of it as me trying to vilify Japan or something or make them come across as some big enemy. I don't want to diminish the impact that Japanese colonial rule had on Korean civilians. I just want to highlight some historical facts. So I first became aware of the extent to which Koreans living under Japanese rule had to learn Japanese when I came across a personal essay that I would highly recommend. This essay is written by the author Alexander Chi. He wrote it for the New York Times. It's called, My Family's Shrouded History is Also a National One for Korea. It really gives some personal insight into the author's grandfather's experience with growing up under Japanese occupation in Korea and his resulting pride for his own country, Korea, language and culture. A link to Alexander's essay will be in the show notes. So in case you don't know, Japan colonized Korea for decades, starting in 1910. And as part of this colonization, the Japanese empire banned the Korean language from being taught in schools. And it was instead compulsory for everyone to learn and speak in Japanese. But if you think about it, this is a really serious business, taking away your language, your means of communication, and imposing a foreign language onto people. On some level, it it makes sense to know the language of the ruler of the country. This imposition occurred under an imperial order called the Korean Re-Education Rescript of 1911, issued by Emperor Meiji of Japan. And the concept of having everyone learn Japanese was called Gokugo, which means national language in Japanese. And it was part of this plan to assimilate Koreans to Japanese culture. This plan is called Doka. And I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but hopefully. Uh, Doka means assimilation in Japanese. Students also had to pledge loyalty to the Japanese emperor every morning under this policy. So as I was kind of mentioning before, this is a really big deal to take away someone's means of communication. And the point of this whole entire plan was honestly to eradicate the Korean language. That's at least according to some of the papers that I've read. And Japan implemented a similar policy for forced Japanese language learning in other countries it colonized as well. There is a lot of information about Taiwan experiencing this. In his personal essay, Alexander Chi mentions that his grandfather still dreamed in Japanese. So I'm going to read a little bit from Alexander's essay. He writes, quote, My grandfather's dreams were just one legacy of the Japanese occupation government's 35-year colonization program. 
intent on assimilating Koreans culturally and politically, erasing their language, history, and culture. Naisen Itai, Japan and Korea as one body, treated Koreans as the lost sibling race to the Japanese, reclaimed to be re-educated, end quote. So, as Alexander says, these efforts were part of an attempt to basically Japanify Korea and Koreans. They kind of both aligned with them, being like, hey, we're the same race, kind of, sort of, basically. And so, yeah, you guys should learn our culture and our language. Here's another excerpt from Alexander's essay. Quote, Korean newspapers were closed or censored heavily. Japanese language and culture were taught in schools, and Koreans were forced to take Japanese names. And as your Korean name connects you to your ancestors, changing that name meant losing them too. Many Koreans took their lives rather than change their names. Others lived with the humiliation, maintaining their Korean name in secret, end quote just found the concept that Alexander brings up of losing your name, meaning that you kind of lose your ancestors in a way, you know, like there's a reason we have the names we have, the re- there's a reason why we speak the way we speak. It's not just words. It's not just meaningless. As a result of Alexander's essay and some of the information that I looked through, you can tell why the character in Shoko Smile, the grandfather, many decades after Japanese imperial rule would still be pretty dang fluent in Japanese. He can read, he can write, and if you've ever been a student of the Japanese language, which I very briefly tried to be, you will know that there's three alphabets in Japanese. So to be fluent and to maintain your fluency is not a joke. In 1945, Japan accepted the Potsdam Declaration, and that meant that Japan was surrendering and Korea was therefore no longer their colony. They were liberated from Japan. The next story is Sin Chao Sin Chao. Okay, big apology to any Vietnamese listeners. I tried to listen to how to pronounce this, and I have no idea if I am correct. But Sin Chao Sin Chao is like hello, hello in Vietnamese. So the story of Xin Chao Xin Chao is about two immigrant families in 1990s Germany. One is a Korean family and the other is a Vietnamese family. And this portion of the episode may have some slight spoilers. And again, as mentioned previously, my point in bringing up the dark side of any country's history is never to villainize a people or a country. Unfortunately, many, many countries have committed horrible acts of violence or atrocities on other people especially in times of war. When you heard or read about the Vietnam War, you may have heard about some major massacres. What you may not know is that Korean soldiers committed many massacres as well. And I didn't realize how many Korean soldiers or how much Koreans fought in the Vietnam War. They fought as US allies and were sent over by President Park chung There's an article about the first lawsuit, which was just recently brought up in 2020 against the Korean government for one of these atrocities by a Vietnamese woman who survived an attack that killed her family when she was a child during the Vietnam War. And I really don't want to disrespect this woman by completely mispronouncing her name. So I will include a link so you can read the article yourself. I did want to read a small excerpt from an article I read about her. 
It says, quote, according to her testimony, the incident took place when she was eight years old, and she had to spend nearly a year in hospital after being shot in the stomach by Korean soldiers. In the village, some 74 people are believed to have been killed during the massacre, end quote. So the South Korean government historically never really acknowledged these atrocities or admitted to anything from what I can tell. And in the story, Sinjao Sinjao as well, um, this is the spoiler right now, one of the characters feels that they, Korea should not have to apologize now for what has happened. So in real life, victims groups continue to lobby for either an apology or recognition from the Korean government. And the current Korean president, Moon Jae-in, did in 2018 visit Vietnam and say that he had, quote, regrets over an unfortunate past, end quote. It's really interesting to think about the tension that exists when your family members, you know, maybe you yourself were not there, or maybe you yourself can't remember a traumatic event or some tragedy, but you know that it occurred. And you have to still be friends with the people who had you live through that time, or if this was still that time, you may have considered your enemy. It's really, it's really intense to think about. The next story is Sister, My Little Sune. For the next story, I will have to give some spoilers. This story is about relatives who consider themselves as sisters. The elder sister suffers a cruel twist of fate when her husband is accused by the Korean government of being a communist spy and he is thrown into prison. When he's released, he and his family suffer the consequences of the toll that his incarceration took on him. The story, according to an interview with the author, is a reference to the Inhyokdang incident in the 70s. So in this incident, individuals were accused of being communist spies and that they were specifically working to overthrow the government of then-President Park Chung-hee in 1975. Eight of these accused individuals were executed by the state. They were alleged to have been part of the People's Revolutionary Party, and that's what Inhyok means in Korean. But then in 2007, they were posthumously acquitted, and it was found that their confessions were made as a result of torture. In this story, there is the mention of people being dragged to Namsan to be tortured. And when I first read this, I didn't quite understand because Namsan, to someone who has only ever visited Korea as a tourist, like me, is where there's like a pretty mountain, you can take a cable car up to the top of the mountain, and then there's this really cool tower on top, and it's just this iconic part of the Seoul skyline. But actually, in the 70s and 80s, it had a connotation for being a place of torture. And that's because of the notorious Korean Central Intelligence Agency, or the KCIA, interrogation center being located there, right under Namsan Mountain. A Korea Times columnist describes it like this, quote, For almost 30 years, it had a sinister reputation, Going to Namsan, or being taken to Namsan, equaled trouble and interrogation by men who feared North Korean espionage was all around and were determined to root it out legally or not. Another jocular line from those days was one that would be gone for a little while, meaning indefinitely. Beatings happened with regularity, not to mention torture and murder. Most notorious was the so-called Room of Death, 
or Section 6, where suspected dissidents got heavy-handed treatment. Located down in the basement of KCIA headquarters, this was a 30-square-meter spot where ultraviolence could be perpetrated free of sanction, end quote. And these were called judicial killings at the time. There are some people who think the KCIA didn't even ever exist. Uh, the building in Namsan is not used, obviously, for those purposes now. There are some people who think that the reports about what went on in interrogation center were made up. I even found some websites and articles related to that theory in my own research. But even if some people think it never existed, I do want to paint a picture of what was allegedly going on in there. So here's an excerpt from another article, and all these articles, of course, will be linked in my show notes. Quote, At the time of the People's Revolutionary Party incident in 1975, it was used as a space for torture, with two sealed rooms, each reportedly resembling the large refrigerators used by butchers, with thick metal doors that did not open from inside. Holdak, one of the PRP suspects taken into one of the two small rooms, each measuring just over 10 and 12 square meters, attempted suicide with a broken eyeglass lens after facing unendurable torture. Others were stomped on until they suffered hernias or lung abscesses, end quote. So just an apology there for getting kind of graphic. I know it's not easy to listen to depictions of brutal torture for everyone, but this information, I think, makes it a little more easy to understand the character who was taken away by the government with the suspicion of being a communist conspirator and spy the secret. The last two stories in the book reference the Sewol Ferry disaster from 2014. Many of you already know about the Sewol Ferry disaster, and if you do not, I really encourage you to learn about this recent tragedy. A brief summary is that in 2014, a ferry bound from Korea to Jeju Island filled with primarily high schoolers from Tanwan High School who were on their way to begin a fun school trip capsized. Most of the passengers, 304 of them, died in the sinking. This was considered a major tragedy, along with the failing from the Korean government. So many things went wrong with this tragedy. The passengers were told they would be safer if they remained in their cabins, so many didn't even have a chance to escape because they followed the instructions that they were given. The captain abandoned his passengers and escaped while leaving them all behind. The Coast Guard never arrived to rescue them, even as the students waited patiently in their bright orange life jackets. There remain so many questions about why the boat sank, why the passengers did not receive help. Survivors, as well as families of the victims, are left feeling that there has been no justice and not enough accountability. The tragedy, among other things, and the government's response, or lack thereof, eventually led to the impeachment of President Park Geun-hye. I highly recommend a short film, which I will link to, called In the Absence. This is a documentary film about the disaster that, frankly, is kind of hard to watch, but is worth watching. Be advised that it includes some footage taken by passengers who were in the process of documenting the school trip they were so excited for, and instead documented the confusing moments before the tragedy when the ship was listing back and forth but overhead announcements coming through the speakers relayed instructions for them to just remain in their cabins. This film is only about half an hour long, so if you think you can manage it, please do watch it. 
It was also nominated for an Academy Award. In the book, after the story, The Secret, there's a translator's note about probationary or contract teachers, specifically the teachers Kim Chowon and Yi Jie. They are the inspiration for the story, The Secret. These two individuals were temporarily working as teachers, hence their probationary titles, and they were accompanying the students from their school on this trip. So they were passengers on the ship right along with them. The notable thing about teachers Kim and Lee is that they actually went down lower into the ship in order to assist students with donning life jackets. In their efforts to save their students, they sadly themselves died in the sinking. The Ministry of Personnel Management of Korea said that due to Kim and Lee's temporary slash probationary status, they were not considered as being killed in the line of duty. And this is an important designation because those teachers who were killed in the line of duty got a certain level of financial compensation. They received recognition for their efforts and for their deaths. Father of teacher Kim Chowan fought really hard to get recognition for his daughter. And then finally in 2017, three years after the accident, President Moon finally recognized their heroic deaths as line of duty deaths on National Teachers Day in Korea. This is a great example of the author of this book, Eun Young Choi's dedication to shed light on people who don't otherwise get the attention that they deserve. And I sincerely hope that the families and the victims and those who survived the tragedy get the answers and the accountability that they desperately need. In conclusion, I highly recommend this book. I find myself thinking about these characters and their stories so often, and I just, I know I'm going to read this book more than once. I will go ahead and link to a couple of interviews with the author of the book, Choi Eun-young or Eun-young Choi, but I want to warn you that there may be some spoilers contained within these interviews. I really admire the way the author thinks about issues and people in Korean society. In one interview, she says, quote, Although a book isn't a person, I hoped that mine would be a book that listens to the stories of people going through similar battles as me, that readers would feel like someone was listening to them and feel less trapped and alone, end quote. I think this book does a great job of listening to the stories of these characters. If you checked out this book, let me know what you thought. Personally, I hope to read additional books by this author, just as long as they publish English translations for them as well. And as always, if you enjoyed today's episode, please tell a friend about this podcast. Special thanks to my research assistant for this episode, S. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye.